You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read black books and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. This week on the podcast, we are talking about Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity by C. Riley Snorton. And this was an interesting and difficult, uh, challenging book to read. So we're going to hop right in. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about my expectations with the book, how I came to the book, and then uh, I'm going to give a summary, brief summary, and then dive into each part of the book. There's three parts of the book. So um, from the title, you can more or less tell what the book is about. Once again, that is Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. So it's a book about trans identity, but there will be a better summary in just a moment. Okay, first of all, the expectations or how I came to the book. So I came to this book by doing a reading challenge. It's the one I do every year. It's Book Riot's Read Harder Challenge. And the whole point of this reading challenge is to read more and to read more diversely. And I've made the point before that I think most black Americans and maybe most black people in the diaspora and black Africans as well and Africans in general, maybe, uh, maybe, we're just natural diverse readers. I think certainly for black Americans, they're naturally diverse readers because so much of the canon is made up of white people and white men, especially that when you're younger, you're going to have to read outside of your um, racial group and ethnicity and gender. Nevertheless, I still like the challenge because it does open me up to other things that I wouldn't necessarily read without being prompted. And so that's how I was opened up to this book. I wouldn't necessarily pick up this book, but it was one of the prompts and um, it fulfills the LGBTQ history book challenge. And that right there is a problem with the way the book was presented to me. I, I was told this was a history book by Book Riot's suggestion article. They had an article that suggests which books fulfill each prompt. So I was told this was a history book and the blurb on Amazon is somewhat misleading, okay? So here's the, the first paragraph of the blurb. The story of Christine Jorgensen, America's first prominent transsexual, famously narrated trans embodiment in the post-war era. Her celebrity, however, has obscured other mid-century trans narratives, ones lived by Amer African Americans such as Lucy Hicks Anderson and James McHarris. Their erasure from trans history masks the profound ways race has figured prominently in the construction and representation of transgender subjects. In Black on Both Sides, C. Riley Snorton identifies multiple intersections between blackness and transness from the mid-19th century to present-day anti-black and anti-trans legislation and violence. This is a super misleading blurb for what this book actually is. And, and it is my fault for not reading further, but even if I had, it wouldn't really have helped clarify that this book is not anything like a history book, nor was it intended to be. That was not C. Riley Snorton's intention. 
And the author makes this explicitly clear in the introduction. So my first mistake was trusting Bookwright and trusting the blurb. Now this has nothing to say about the quality of the book, which is good. It's just that I was going in thinking, I'm getting a straightforward history book, and it was going to tell me about some historical trans figures that I had nothing that I knew nothing about. And uh, I thought that would be interesting. And so I bought the book, but that's not what I got. My second mistake, and this one is truly my own mistake, but it's kind of a rule of thumb I have. But anyway, my second mistake was not reading the introduction. So the book has a forward and an introduction. And I hate reading forwards and introductions before reading a book. But I should have made an exception for this book, especially for the introduction. The forward I could have still skipped. But I should have made an exception for two reasons. First, the introduction is written by the author in the year the book came out. So this isn't the author reflecting on what they had written years after. And this isn't a third person, or excuse me, a second person telling you what they think about the um, author's work and influencing your opinion on the work. This is just the author explaining their parameters and their approach to the book. So I really should have taken that into account. And I did know that the author wrote the introduction. So that is my fault. And then the second thing is, uh, the, author, the introduction clarifies the author's highly theoretical and experimental approach. And so I just told you that the book is not a history book and the author said so. And here's from page 21 in the introduction. The author writes, uh, C. Riley Snorton writes, This book is organized around a series of events that provide occasions for bringing both signs, blackness, and transness into the same frame. Black on both sides is not a history per se so much as it is a set of political propositions and theories. There you go. So it was not intended to be uh, a straight-up history book. It's way more theoretical than that. So it would, have been, it would have been very useful to know this going into reading the book. It would have clarified the first two sections of the book, which are highly theoretical and dense and difficult to get through. And... Had I known that beforehand, I would have just prepared myself. I would say, you know, the two of the book's biggest influences are, well, there's, that's, that's actually wrong to say. There's so many different works cited in here. But Franz Fanon, Franz Fanon is definitely cited throughout the book. And uh, Foucault is, is uh, cited several times. So knowing that it was going to be based off of two writers in that vein of writing, Foucault and Fanon, I think I could have prepared myself for what was happening had I just read the introduction or not thought of it as a history book. So those two things definitely colored my feeling about the book when I first started. That being said, I did enjoy the book, uh, especially once I got to the third section, which is the easiest section. And once I went back and reread the introduction, and then I went back through and read different parts of the book, once I did all of that and actually could understand a bit more, uh, I vibed with the book doesn't make the book any easier it's still a difficult book and there are definitely still parts i don't understand parts that are outside of my knowledge and ability to understand there's so many works cited here and it's uh, so heavily academic that you would have to do a ton of extra reading supplementary reading just to get a hold on things and i did a little bit so i did go through and uh read a couple of works that were cited in the book and i did go back and check up on some of the th books that were cited that I actually own. And even then, there's just too much. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. All right, so let's just do a brief summary here. Part one of the book examines the history of gynecology, 
uh, and its relation to slavery, sex, and gender, as well as the thingness of flesh and the fungibility of flesh and blackness and transness. It also tells the story of William and Ellen Craft, okay, who were two runaway slaves who posed as master and slave. And the, the wife, Ellen Craft, posed as a man, or passed as a man, I should say, a white man. So it was a double passing, which I'd never heard about. Very interesting. Okay. Part two discusses three Negro classics, and it uses that term three Negro classics because the books were collected in a, uh, a collection in the 60s called Three Negro Classics. And they are Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, Souls of Black Folks, uh, The Soul of Black Folks by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, staring at that book right now above me, and The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson. This is not a straightforward approach to these books, okay? So it discusses these three Negro classics, but it does it under the lens of uh, how they are related to black flesh and specifically how these writers are related to black women, namely their mothers, and black female, how black men have to confront the black women inside of them, which is an interesting idea that we'll get to in more detail in a moment. And then part three, like I said, is the most straightforward section, and it covers the history of famous and infamous, uh, famous or infamous, you know, for different reasons, transgender people, uh, as well as the erasure of blackness. I shouldn't say the erasure, actually. The word that uh, Snorton uses is negation. Negation of blackness. So, uh, that's, that's a brief summary of the book. And I should say here, I think it's important when talking about this book to talk about the general idea. So I think Snorton's general idea can best be summed up in in his own words, which is that uh, the perception that race, so these are Snorton's own words, the perception that race and gender are fixed and knowable terms is the dominant logic of identity. In this book, trans is more about a movement with no clear origin and no point of arrival. And blackness signifies upon an enveloping environment and condition of possibility. Here, trans, in each of its permutations, finds expression and continuous circulation within blackness, and blackness is transected by embodied procedures that fall under the sign of gender. So I think for trans, that's a idea that is not necessarily new. I'm not saying that I was familiar with the idea, but accepting that as a definition of trans or as a mode of thought when reading this book to think of trans in that way is not necessarily difficult to do. The blackness aspect of it is very interesting. So blackness signifies upon an enveloping environment and condition of possibility. I just like the idea of blackness as an abstract theoretical thing and a condition of possibility because... When you reduce to blackness, and using reduced here, using a negative term because that's the way it has been perceived in America for hundreds of years, when you reduce to blackness, you are not quite a thing. You have fungibility. You can be changed between different forms. So I thought that was very interesting, and it's a necessary thing to know when you're reading this book. And 
Snorton wrote this on page 16, so had I just read the introduction, I would have known that, and it would have helped. Okay, let's go into each one of these parts. So part one, um, in the author's words, it shows the fungibility of captive flesh produced a critical context for understanding sex and gender as mutable and subject to rearrangement in the arenas of medicine and law. And in this section, the author, so medicine and laws, they're going to go through history of gynecology and then also the the case against the crafts who were that fugitive couple who ran away posing as uh, master and slave. They were, uh, because of the Fugitive Slave Act, they were, they were, they had to flee the country. They lived in exile. So that's the arenas of medicine and law to which Norton is referring. So in this section, they go through the history of, gyne- or, uh, the author goes through the history of gynecology shows how experiments on black women were used to further the field. And it's through these experiments that Snorton seeks to point out how flesh becomes a thing, right? There's a thingness to flesh. It's not even, so there's, there's references to the fact that when they wanted to perform experiments on black people, it's just, we need 50 Negroes. We need disabled people. Send me whoever you got. It so happens that in this conversation, it's gynecology. So specifically they needed women, but there are countless examples of experimentation on black people uh, throughout history in America. And in one of the cited works in a different section that was written by Hortense Spillers, Hortense J. Spillers, she talks about other examples of black people being experimented on in America. So there's tons of examples of black people being experimented on for medicinal purposes in America. And it's through this that Snorton points out how flesh becomes a thing and how the arrangement of sex and gender were brought about in part by uh, chattel slavery. Right away, (laughs) I confess that I do not know if this is true or not. I I for sure know it's true that black people were experimented on for medical reasons, and I do know for sure that black people were prosecuted under the law. Whether or not that specifically shows that chattel slavery brought about sex and gender or the arrangement of sex and gender. It's something that I can't prove or that I think is provable, but that is just the contention of the first part. And like I said, it's highly theoretical. I don't think that Snorton is trying to necessarily say this 100% has to be this way. It's more like this is a reading of what this means. Number one. And number two, he says in the writing that, Uh, This was one of the things that brought about the arrangement of sex and gender. Chattel slavery was one of the things. So it's not like Snorton is saying here, the reason gender is regarded the way it is in modern America is directly linked to blackness and slavery, and that's it, and that's the only reason. That's not what is being said. What is being said is that that is one of the reasons, and that there is a connection then between blackness and transness. Right away, you can tell that when reading this section that it's super difficult, dense writing. It's highly metaphysical and academic. So here's just an example of one sentence that I highlighted while reading that I read like, I've now read the sentence like eight times. And I, what, there's context around the sentence, but even then, it's just kind of a, an example of when academic writing can be too much or when theoretical writing can be too much. So here's the sentence. 
Put differently, addressing the question of what it is like to be flesh necessitates a mode of thinking capable of discerning the conditions of possibility for the conditions of possibility. You know, it's kind of difficult. <laughs> addressing the question of what it is like to be flesh necessitates a mode of thinking capable of discerning the conditions of possibility for the conditions of possibility. I mean, it makes sense when you read it more, but it was just an example of like a fairly easy sentence. No words in there you got to look up. No, nothing that's like, uh, oh, I don't know what that word means or that's academic jargon. Pretty straightforward vocabulary, but hard to read one time and get the, uh, get the gist of what's being said. Difficult section, interesting section. I will say that overall, I'm convinced absolutely that there is, that black flesh was uh, turned into thingness, that there was fungibility. No, no questions asked. Part one convinced me of that. Some of the more specific things that were being posited, I don't know. I'd have to do more reading on them. But just the idea that black flesh was thought of as a thing and used to further medicine and used to or uh, was confined by law and in the law was thought of as being a thing. I don't see any way you could argue against it. Part one was good for that, but definitely hard to get through more of the theoretical stuff. On to part two, which discusses the three Negro classics with an eye towards showing that black modernity would indicate the ways that black gender is, uh, as Christina Sharp has articulated, anagrammatical, which is to say open to at least literary manipulation and rearrangement. That's the lens in which we are discussing these three Negro classics. An eye towards showing that black modernity, that they were written in the black, black modernism style, to show how that indicates the way in which black gender is, can be manipulated and can be rearranged, at least in literature. The second part of this is that this chapter is organized along a series of meditations on what Hortense J. Spiller calls the unique heritage of men in the black diaspora to express the female within. All right, so these are two difficult ideas, and uh, I'm not going to try to disprove them or anything like that, but just kind of discuss my thoughts on them. So I was very confused by this section. And so uh, this was the section where I decided I would go and read Hortense J. Spiller's work that was being cited. And it was Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American Grammar Book, which you can Google and find a PDF of pretty easily. And on the whole, this section makes a little bit more sense now. So the, the basic idea, it seems to be that American black males are the only black males, or excuse me, are the only males in America with a matriarchal lineage. And that lineage has allowed or forced black males to become acquainted with the female within. And why do they have this matriarchal lineage? It's because black women, when they were slaves, were forced to reproduce offspring to become more slaves. And those slaves were disconnected from their mothers and fathers, especially if their father was the master of the plantation, they belonged to the plantation. They didn't truly belong to their mother. But if they did belong to anybody, it was their mother. That was the most likely person they would belong to. So there's that connection that black males have to the female. That is what has resulted in, according to Spillers and 
snorting, black males dealing with the female within up into modern times. And that is what Snorton goes through these three books for. Booker T. Washington talking about Mammy, which is a whole other conversation, that term Mammy. W.B. Dubois talking about Mammy. And Weldon Johnson, not as much in his book. Yeah, not as much. So that that's what that's all about. Okay, whether or not it's true, it's certainly true that the non-gendering of black flesh occurred on the Middle Passage. Nobody cared. They just popped people into the middle into the boats as much as they could. The only time they paid attention to gender was to say that women, you could fit more women in this section than men, and that's it. And the idea that black women were made into things who just produced more slaves also is a non-gendering because they're not really a human woman. They're just a thing that pops out babies, right? And not even babies, but slaves. So that's certainly true. That all makes sense. Whether or not this demands or forces or coerces black men to deal with the female within is hard to say. And I don't, again, think it's provable. But that's not the point of, you know, theorizing here. But short of being provable, was I convinced by the argument? I would say that I was at least intrigued by the argument. Again, just to prove that Snorton is presenting theories here and not trying to, like, say this is definitively the case. In the earlier section, Snorton was talking about the fact that there is a quote-unquote mother-like thing describing uh, black people, okay? All black people. So, the quote-unquote mother-like who comes to stand in for all black people in this passage might be read as a gesture towards effeminization of black men based on their barred access to white patriarchal power. It would be more instructive, however, to read this instance of mammification as the articulation of certain gendered dimensions of blackness in which the black, quote-unquote, mother-like is neither a black woman nor a black man. And then it keeps going on. The point is, is that Snorton is aware that you could read these passages in different ways, but he is asking you to read it in this way, to think about it in this way. Okay, And if you do that, it's intriguing. Are you going to be convinced? Well, that's up to you. All right, uh, some other stuff in this section that I thought was interesting. The idea of these three narratives being packaged for white audiences to digest, which is to say the, uh, the idea of these narratives about black flesh being molded to the uh, tastes of white audiences resonates deeply with me, and I imagine it would resonate deeply with a lot of black folks these days. Specifically in literature, Marlon James was on a podcast a couple years ago for the New York Times book review, and he was on there with Claire Bay Watkins, and she was talking about, it was after she had given that speech at some literature event about tearing down the patriarchy, and James was asking her, was she aware that black writers are writing to anticipate the tastes of white women? Because overwhelmingly, uh, white women work in the publishing industry. And I thought that was something that was really interesting and true and something that isn't talked about as much as tearing down the patriarchy was being talked about. And I never really, I mean, I listen to that book review all the time and I, I read a good amount and I haven't really heard too much about said about that since. Um, you know, who do you write for, I believe, was the Claire V. Watkins uh, speech. And Marlon James was asking the same question. And uh, there wasn't much said about it. But I think that that is brought up in this section of the book too, kind of tangentially 
but not really. It's it's another example of how black flesh is molded to the whims of uh, of white people. And this is why black people remain. So a second thing that popped out of me here was this is why black people remain wary of any black person whose work is explicitly enjoyed by white audiences or exclusively enjoyed by white audiences or overwhelmingly enjoyed by black uh, by white audiences. Um, there's always something a little bit suspect if something comes out by a black artist and you find out that everybody who listens to it is not black or everybody who watches it is not black or when you ask a black friend like hey have you seen that thing and they're like nah i didn't watch that and they ask you like what about you and like nah i didn't watch it either they're always weary of, wary of stuff like that um dave Chappelle once said that someone told him that his comedy was too black for white audiences and too white for black audiences and i think dave is a good example of someone who you know, he quit the Chappelle show. He thought his show was becoming too much influenced by probably corporate influences, but also he was becoming somewhat of a, he, I think he would say he was, he was feeling like he was becoming a minstrel a little bit and he didn't like that. And now in his present incarnation, he's definitely saying whatever he wants now, I guess in a podcast that's talking about a book with trans identity, bringing up Dave Chappelle is probably a bad idea, but uh, bringing him up in the idea of black, with with regards to um black artists not making things specifically for white audiences was the idea but yeah not to bring them up in this in this podcast otherwise the third thing i would say is that of the three negro classics uh, i have read two and i blame dubois for my for me not having read uh booker t washington because they had a little beef going not that you know not that Dubois is uh, infallible. He's definitely had some issues since then. But anyway, um, I had read an autobiography by an ex-colored man, and I didn't know the level to which it was meant as satire. So, I mean, of course I knew it was satire, but I didn't know at the time that James Walden Johnston, the first time he published it, he published it anonymously, and that he like he, he did that so that people would think it was a real autobiography. And I didn't know he was trying to like trick people or do like performance art. I had no idea there was an aspect to it like that whatsoever. So I thought that was really interesting with the book. So, but anyway, so part two, very, very difficult, like part one to get through the theory and to come away with like, do I agree with this theory? Do I not agree with this theory? You're not really going to, I think, be able to solve that question, but you're at least going to be intrigued by the ideas. And, um, yeah, I would recommend reading Hortense J. Spillers as well. That 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 uh, that essay that was cited is really good and not too long, um, very dense and full of really interesting ideas as well. All right, part three, the part of the book that I wanted, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the first two parts of the book, which I came to appreciate much more, but part three was what I got this book for, and I didn't know that. I thought this was going to be the whole book. So part three talks about, uh, as I said earlier, Christine Jorgensen, Hicks Anderson, Georgia Black, Carlet, uh, Carlet Brown, and several others. We're not going to read all their names. And so this is way more of just like a straightforward history thing. There's definitely a theoretical thing going on here at the end of part three, but um, much of it is just uh, straightforward history. And I'm going to go ahead and just highlight some things I thought were interesting, which is not really what snorton asks us to do in reading this book um he's asking us to be way more intellectual and analytical and not just 
one of those people who reads history books and goes like, wow, that's interesting history. But unfortunately, I'm about to be that person who just reads this book and goes, wow, that's interesting history. And I'm sorry, but that's what I came to the book for. That being said, I did engage the theory. You can't say I didn't engage the theory. Okay. So anyway, the first thing I have to say is Hicks Anderson. The So Hicks Anderson was was put on trial for posing as a woman as they said, and in exchange for an unincarcerated life, Hicks Anderson's lawyers said they had hidden organs. And so once Hicks Anderson died, they could go in and look for the organs to acquit them posthumously. And that's just so absurd and also points back to Snorton's whole point about black bodies being uh, used for experimentation and, you know, quote-unquote medicinal purposes. But I just thought that was a crazy detail. Uh, another detail that came out in the Christine Jorgensen section, Christine Jorgensen was a white person. Uh, so that was the the opening of part three was that Christine Jorgensen was like white and kind of glamorized. And then there were all these black trans people who were not glamorized. No less important. But Christine Jorgensen was white and glamorized and kind of fascinating for American society. And one of those people who was fascinated by them was Jean the Charmer, a.k.a. Louis Farrakhan. I had no idea that Jean the Charmer, a Calypso performer, was Louis Farrakhan, or I guess the other way around. And so he wrote a song called Is She Is or Is She Ain't? wild stuff so i confess to just being a prisoner of reading this and going wow that's interesting history but i was and then so the last part of um of part three goes into the story of i've forgotten the person's name now because it doesn't concentrate on that person it's the movie boys don't cry the the character who dies is the person who died in real life is Brandon. But this focuses on one of the other victims who is there, who's often overlooked and that's Philip divine. And this is the experimental part of this section where Snorton imagines Philip divine's life. But the thing was, is that I couldn't really understand and I still can't how much of this, of this section was invented because it, it cited sources all the way through it. And Snorton was saying that, it was still an invention and, and has a, has a whole section about why invention is important and how it um, helps create a different uh, type of history and how it helps um, forge new modes of being for blackness and transness. And, and I, I, I dig all of that. It's just that I just, it didn't seem like it was invented at all. Maybe that was the point. So I went back and reread the section but the thing was, is that it cited things that were true. Like it, it cited the book by Aphrodite Jones that was about those killings. I believe they're called the Humboldt murders. So really don't know how much was in, invented or not invented. I have to say it didn't matter to me. Um, like it didn't take anything away. And yeah, as, as the last and third part of the, of, of the book, um, and the most theoretical part of the third part, I wasn't like, oh, wow, I can't handle this. Or if this isn't true, then this doesn't work or something like that. I just, I just don't know what part was invented or not. And 
I think that was the intention. I, I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was interesting, but I could not figure out uh, how much of it was invented. There is so much more to this book than what I've discussed, but we are well over 30 minutes. It's a really interesting book. It's a really, really challenging book, though. I do have to say, so for two notes on the writing, the writing style is just super difficult. And, like, the parts that I read, the reason I read them was they were the clearest parts I could find. But even the one that I was reading that I, I wanted to like demonstrate how dense the book was, was like as clear as I could find. Because there is actually a sentence that I highlighted and then wrote a note that was like, this is an absurdly long sentence. And I just was not going to read it on the podcast. So there are definitely some sections of this book, which I don't care how many times you read it, it's going to remain dense. And the other thing is, is that in order to really grapple with the information in this book, you're going to have to do tons of supplementary reading. So I actually have Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks sitting on my shelf. I haven't read it, though. So that would have been one that I needed to read. Then Foucault, right? Hortense Spillers, okay. Dubois, uh, Booker T. Washington, and then X, the, the, the James Walden Johnson. All right, that sounds like a pretty good amount. There's... 40 other writers in there. And the thing is, is that unlike when I was reading, I forget about anything specific. Unlike when I'm reading anything else, I don't have a cache of knowledge back, backed up from reading these writers that uh, Snorton was referencing. I just have never read that much about this subject. So I would say for a person who's interested in learning more about trans identity, this is a bad book to start with because you need to have a ton of prerequisite knowledge and of all of the stuff I just named that's some of it was prerequisite knowledge for me some of it wasn't but most of that was that still wasn't enough to really digest these ideas and be able to like intelligently grapple with them was not enough so if this is a starting point you should start somewhere else but if you have any kind of knowledge about trans identity then this would be a good book. Even then, it would still be a pretty dense book. It's sold on Amazon as a textbook, and I think that that's more accurate to the kind of book you're getting. Closer to something like a textbook and way further away from something like uh, a straightforward history. The way it was presented in that blurb, I thought I was getting something closer to a straightforward history or even a pop history book. And that's not what you're getting here. You're getting a highly theoretical, experimental, academic book. So there you go. The last thing I'll say is that with uh, with regards to W.B. Dubois, I kind of want to do this experiment. I would like to, for every book that I read from now on by any black person that's written or any 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 book that is an academic history book written post Dubois so that would basically be any book uh past whatever 1900 how many of them or specifically post uh, souls of black folk how many of these book books reference the double consciousness thing I feel like the specter of Dubois haunts every black writer at least one time a black writer has to mention it I know for sure I've mentioned it before everybody has to mention it by law if you are black and you have not mentioned Dubois double consciousness thing you will be thrown out you will they will not even publish the work but it was funny it's mentioned a couple times in this book fanon is definitely mentioned way more than dubois and is uh more of the um the uh the the intellectual predecessor of of this work 
but uh, even still, Dubois is mentioned, and so, and so we still have Dubois haunting us all these years later. All right, so I'm going to stop it there. Uh, this is probably the longest I've ever gone on one of these podcasts, but this was a difficult one, and there was a lot of material here. So next week we will definitely be reading something easier, something fiction. I think I said that last time, and then I didn't do it, but this time I swear. I'm going to read a book that is not as difficult as this book was this week um, because my brain needs to just relax. So uh, I will dig through and find something easy and I'll read it and then I'll talk about it next week. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.